This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefan Abini, the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. I am your host for this podcast series. On our last podcast, we heard from Sam DeBroyer about the impact of blockchain on the future of healthcare. It was an outstanding keynote, and I'm sure you enjoyed it. Today on our fourth podcast, we will join our friend, the incomparable Matthew Holt, who founded the Conference Health 2.0 as he interviews Shirak Kasuma, who spearheaded the Apple iWatch partnership with Zimmer Biomet, and who's speaking on the use of sensors to track patient recovery. We'll also hear from Ari Meyer from Google Cloud Services. He'll speak about how Google is building a cloud services ecosystem for healthcare. After him will come Dr. Daniel Kraft, the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. He'll speak about the Internet of Orthopedic Things. Let's take it from here and turn it over to Matthew on the stage of DocSF19 as he introduces his team. Next up, we're going to go to the quick takes. I have the opportunity and pleasure to, re- to introduce to you Matthew Holt, for those who don't know him. He's the Matthew Holt, co-founder of Health 2.0, which I highly recommend as an exceptional conference to attend. If you have a chance, he holds in a Santa Clara every year in the fall. They have several other events around the world. And he still uh, edits the uh, healthcare blog, which uh, is also an excellent blog to, to review. So Matthew, thanks for coming and leading our quick takes, where we're going to dive briefly into some hot topics right now. Thank you. Thanks, Stefano. Oh, that was great. Thank you, Sam. Uh, good tour de force there. Can I invite my panelists to come up? Because they're here somewhere. Oh, hang on, I see one of them. There is Daniel Craft. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sharat, are you here somewhere? Oh, there he is. Fantastic. Come on up. Ari, you're hiding somewhere. Ari's really hiding. Okay, run to the front. I can't see you guys. They very generously gave us three microphones. So what we're going to do here is have some fun, but we're also going to have three quick lightning bursts. You guys want to pass those down and how you want to do this. And uh, we don't have an order yet, so we'll have to figure that out. But uh, let me tell you who we've got here anyway. So I'm Matthew Holt. I, I used to, as, as, uh, as Stefano said, he called me up for advice about running a conference. My major advice was don't do it. For God's sake, you're a, the best orthopedic surgeon in the world, as we found out at XMED, Daniel. That, uh, is that how you introduced Stefano? And now you're running a conference. But uh, when you're an unemployed blogger, running a conference might be a viable business. But uh, but as it, as it turns out, we've got a bunch of people who, who are doing different things. Um, we have two MDs on the panel. Sharat was a very respectable orthopedic surgeon who then went and became a management consultant. So, you know, we'll, dis- we'll, we'll discuss how that goes. And so now it's at Apple. And we're gonna, can we go back one second, one slide? And is now going to give a quick take about wearables um, from his uh, vantage point. He's been working at Apple for a year and a half now. Something like that. All right, fantastic. On, the, on Daniel in the middle, used to be a really important pediatric oncologist and now runs a conference. Not that. That's not even running a conference, Daniel. No, no uh, very well known, obviously, for exponential medicine and being probably the, I say the leading keynote speaker about the future of medicine and, and technology uh, across the world globally. And the only respectable person on the panel, I'm a political scientist, but uh, Ari has a real PhD and a real job <laughs> working at Google uh, in the cloud. And he's going to talk about the cloud. By the way, Sam put up those market caps 
of uh, Google and Alpha, Alphabet and uh, and uh, Microsoft and uh, you know and Apple and any of you who bought at those market caps can blame these two for all the failings since then. Right? You may have lost forty percent, but don't worry about it. They'll they'll pay you back. Right? <laughs> okay. So with that, we're going to jump right into it. And uh, first up, I guess Sharad. So good uh, good afternoon, everybody. Or I guess mid afternoon. Uh, I want to thank Stefano for giving me a chance to come speak at this meeting. I'm a recovering, uh, as, as, as you pointed out, Matthew, uh, arthroplasty surgeon myself. And uh, I've had the privilege in my career of um, having a meaningful clinical life and taking care of a lot of patients, but also now got to do some deep dive work at Apple and, you know, what I'll call consumer wearables. And that word consumer has, uh, as I learned, a lot of importance because we can certainly in a laboratory build something very expensive and th that could work in a, in a, you know, in a laboratory setting. But as far as something we want to deploy broadly that has meaningful healthcare applications, uh, I think there's more to it than that. And I think, what do we have, Stefan? About six minutes, right? Is that right? Per person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll go quickly uh, through the agenda. I just want to talk briefly about why might there be an interest in orthopedics plus wearables. Number one, uh, quickly talk about the literature uh, regarding wearables, which is uh, admittedly pretty sparse at the moment. And then also the question often comes up again, talking about consumer wearables that are ready for, you know, that are, I'll say, prime time or or uh, that are ready for mass scale. What can they actually do today that, that we might be, that might be of clinical interest? Because if you think about it, most wearable, consumer wearables were not developed, at least in my humble opinion, with the idea of let's make the medical devices. We're maybe working a little bit backwards where we have a consumer wearable and let's try to figure out what medical applications we can build for them. That was basically my job. So it's, it's challenging, right? In, in those, and then finally, we'll talk about potential clinical applications. So I'm going to skip this slide in the spirit of time and go right to the money slide here. Um, this slide will resonate with a lot of clinicians in the room and those of you who've had friends or family who've been through a joint replacement. It's 2019, and given the amazing consumer experience I even have now when flying Delta Airlines and checking in my bag and I have an RFID tracker on it that tells me which room in Hartsfield-Jackson Airport these, the luggage is in, something, for something so mundane, we still have what I'll call a pretty archaic journey uh, when we do something as important and grave as a joint replacement, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's got various amounts of paper. People have to carry home large books that, that, you know, they're supposed to read 80-page books about how to become experts in hip and knee replacement in three days. It took me, you know, eight years, you know, given my cognitive deficits, right? So how can I expect my patients to, to, to learn? So just, as an, if, just keep this in your mind. Again, a lot of you, again, are, we have a lot of brilliant clinicians in the room who know this firsthand and others who've had friends and family who've been through this. This is not ideal in 2019. So I think a lot of us have um, promised that a, a device that sits on your wrist that does some relatively simple things, but is on there 24 seven, we can probably, you know, doing the use case I talked about earlier, we can probably use such a device to improve a lot of this. So keep this in mind. If we talk about the literature, I think the literature would show us that even today in 2019, despite our training and our art, we're not very good at perhaps specifically in terms of knee replacement and hip replacement at probably three specific things. Number one, we're not good at figuring out what, what is a quantitative good outcome? We still don't know, even in 20, 2019. Number two, we're not all that good, considering that we fly airplanes that have a crash rate. What is the, the probability of dying in a plane crash? One out of 20 million, some ridiculous number. Our complication rate, we sort of very, I would say, somewhat arrogantly say at our meetings, oh, we have a 2% complication rate for an elective surgery. I would argue in 2019, that's probably unacceptable for something we have time to plan for. So we could be better at that. And then finally, we also suck at figuring out who's going to be really thrilled 
after their knee replacement surgery versus who's going to say, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. And again, in 2019, I think we can do better. However, some of the work that Steph's done, pretty great work, does show us that there is promise that devices like smartphones and wearables can, can help us. And I think the theory, the use case you have to believe here is that moving the device from your pocket on your phone and actually putting it on your wrist can, can have some effect, some meaningful effect. You have to believe that if you think this is actually going to work. And so... I, as we did this work, we, we tried to be structured in our work, and this is a busy slide again on purpose. We really learned that we could probably break down what a wearable, uh, again, a consumer, wrist-worn, you know, or somewhere you can wear it wherever you want, I suppose, on your ankle if you'd like, but uh, a wrist-worn wearable can probably uh, affect the journey positively for patients in four buckets. We can use it to help educate people, right? It's, uh, you know, 15 days before surgery. Stefano, you can be my theoretical patient. You know, remember to stop taking your aspirin, right? We can teach patients with a tap on the wrist. That's number one. In terms of biometrics, again, I think we'd all argue and all admit as experienced clinicians and others in the room, the biometrics that wrist-worn wearables can do today, again, at least in the consumer setting, are not earth-shattering. Let's just call it like it is, right? They're, they're interesting, but they're not earth-shattering. In terms of engagement, again, I think there's a lot of potential here for a wrist-worn device for me to be able to communicate perhaps even better than on my cell phone with my patient and say, hey, uh, what is my thing? Hey, Sherratt, uh, Dr. Beanie has a new message for you. Log into your app to check out what the, you know, that, that's a, I think that's a pretty meaningful use case. And then finally, physical therapy, right? If we can learn to code on a virtual course on a computer and become coding experts, I think we can teach patients fairly simple physical therapy and monitor them using a wrist-worn wearable, right? So those are kind of the use cases. The other question that often comes up when we talk about this is what can they actually do today in terms of biometrics? And again, this is sort of the brass tacks of what they can, at least today, in consumer prime time, what they can actually do. We can look at, you know, they can obviously put in their body habitus. They can do some reasonably sophisticated measurement of sort of activity right now. You know, how many steps, how long have you been standing, how many flights of stairs. They can also do some sort of, this is not true metabolic measurements, but sort of proxy metabolic measurements based on heart rate data, right? So these are sort of the, some of the things. And again, if you look at this list as with an objective eye, this is not earth shattering, you know, continuous glucose monitoring that's not invasive, but it's still interesting, right? It's useful, right? So in this slide here, I, I try, you know, talking about the use case earlier of, of having to work backwards and saying, how can I use those parameters I gave you of what a wearable can do today? How can I use that to sort of answer some clinical questions that actually come up for us as doctors meaningfully, how we might use them? So, for example, and I'll go quickly because I know we're running short on time, but in the preoperative phase, I want to know essentially, is patient A, is Stefano a high risk for a complication? And, and then the way, the way I would do that in, in our current environment, I'll, I'll just go to the, you know, in the spirit of time, instead of going through all three examples, I'll just pick the first one. The way we currently do this today is we use a combination of sort of past medical history. Hey, Stefan, are you a smoker? You know, do you, um, do you eat bacon, you know, for four meals a day? Do you, uh, you know, what's your BMI? What's your, it's, a, it's again, somewhat data-driven, but there's a lot of art in, the, in this process as well. And I, obviously that's improving. We have the view that in the future, that if we have this wearable device that admittedly doesn't do it's not a it's not a you know a worn MRI scanner that has 24/7 data on every biometric parameter, but it has some that if we can take 24/7 data like heart rate variability, like resting heart rate, number of steps, maybe number of active calories, if that data in aggregate over the course of a patient's 30 to 60 day pre-op period could maybe tell us better than these things do what the risk of complication is because this is continuous, this is episodic, and that's essentially the use case for for all of these. Um, all these applications. 
if, again, and looking at some of the, it's pretty interesting actually, there has been some literature around things such as things that I don't, I certainly never asked my patients, hey, Mr. Smith from, you know, you know from, um, Columbus, Ohio, what is your resting heart rate? I never, I never thought to ask that question, nor would I know where to put the stethoscope on the chest because I'm a dumb carpenter. But we do know that resting heart rate actually is a useful parameter that our wearables can measure that can predict risk of complications after some surgeries. And we all, and a heart rate variability is something I never knew anything about until I started this work. We now know that, that heart rate variability can actually be correlated with, and again, that can be pretty easily measured with a reasonably accurate wrist-worn uh, sensor. So, in terms of PROMS, again, those of you who, you know, the term patient-reported outcome measures is pretty popular. You know, this is taken direct, lifted directly from the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK uh, PROM survey. I would argue, instead of asking patients subjectively to say, you know, what, what, have you been limping or when walking with, um, with your new knee replacement, why don't we have a wearable that can actually measure the patient 24-7? Just tell us the answer. Why do we need to ask, have another subjective measure? So these, I think, are pretty meaningful, practical use cases that we, uh, we're passionate about building. And then finally, this will, and this will be my last slide. Um, in terms of clinical utility, patients often come in and say, Dr. Kasuma, I'm four weeks after surgery, how should I be doing? And I sort of look at them and say, well, I have no freaking idea how you should be doing because I, I mean, how, how can I know, right? But if we had wearables like this, we, and, I, and I again sort of made up the axes here, but if we bucket patients perhaps by age on the y-axis, BMI on the x-axis, we could bucket people into patient, you know, males between age 80 and 85 who um, have a BMI of 25 to 30. And I can track if I have a lot, lot of people who are wearing the devices now in, in the operative, um, in the episode, I can get data that shows shows me how this patient should be doing versus how this patient should be doing, a female age 50 to 55. And so I think these things will be helpful for us as doctors to sort of help. And I'm trying to give you a, a flavor of what I think are practical, actually useful clinical cases of how these could fit into our workflow. And so um, I have a few more slides. Again, the main point here, just really quick, is the question might be asked, who's going to deliver on the promise? And per Sam's great comment, it's going to take both groups of the computer scientists and the clinicians, I think, building these things in a vacuum with one or the other is certainly not going to be uh, the answer. So that's uh, uh, glad to take any questions, and I'll pass it on to our next uh, speaker. Thanks. Thanks, Sharad. That was a real good tour de force. No, no, give that, give that. I think Daniel's up next. All right. All right. You have some slides? No, I lied. Ari's up next. I looked a bit. So, Ari, are you ready to go? <laughs> All right. Ari's going to talk about we, we've gone from the wrist and now we're heading to the cloud, the place that Sam is saying isn't going to happen anymore. Hi, folks. My name is Ari. I'm a product manager with Google Cloud. In the next eight minutes or so, I'll try to give you basically three data points. One, I'll try to shape what is the problem that Google is trying to solve in the healthcare space. Second, I'll try to share some of the vision that we have around this. And I'll give you a couple of examples just to seed your thinking, because we probably won't be able to get into much detail. Thank you. That's what happens when computation happens on the edge. So this is a paper for, by Dr. Jenna, who is with Harvard Medical School. He's also a PhD in economics. So let's assume for a second that he knows how to run an experiment. And he asked a very simple question. What happens to patients when doctors leave town? And specifically, he was referring to the American Heart Association and the ACC. Both these uh, associations have a year, an annual convention that lasts a, uh, a week. It typically happens in San Diego. So what happens when 70% of the U.S. cardiologists go to this conference, a week-long conference? So he actually found that mortality goes down during this time. <laughs> he asked ACC for a comment. What do you think they told him? No response. So this is the challenge that we're trying to solve. This, this is basically suggests, this suggests 
that some of the decisions that are made in a clinical context are not in the best interest of the patient. And the reason for that are multiple. We can go into them. But the mission of Google or Alphabet as a whole is to help organize the world's information and help make it universally accessible, secure, and useful, and to help inform these kind of decisions. So when I say accessible, I mean the cloud, and I mean the computational devices that sit on the edge, because you want the, inf the right information in the right context where it's needed. When I mean secure, it includes also compliant, because as Sam mentioned with GDPR, and of course, nobody wants to be in a newspaper. So security and privacy are just table stakes. And useful, this is where we make a big bet on AI and analytics. And AI is such a huge buzzword right now, but what it really means for us is a set of tools that enable people to build applications that extract insights and help inform decisions from data. So let me give you a little bit of context from our perspective about scale. So from consum consumer side, most people know Google as a search engine. Consumer side, one in every 20 Google searches are health-related. So what that means, you have 70,000 searches every minute that are health-related. On the other side, of course, providers who own the data from the clinical data, they also see explosion in the amount of data. Just imaging alone, there is 2 trillion images every year, roughly 50% of it in the U.S. And I'll touch about uh, one of the examples that I'll bring is going to talk about Japan, and I'll touch about this in a second. But what this means is that you have a huge amount of data. This rate is just growing. The, what, what's interesting now is you have access to elastic compute. So you don't no longer need to own huge data centers. You have access to cloud compute. In this sense, Google is no different from other cloud providers. And then the third thing that is interesting in this context is that there has been a huge innovation in algorithms like neural networks, that deep learning, all these approaches that allow you to use data in a more effective way. So these three forces are really answering the question like, why now? Like, why are we sitting here talking about technology in healthcare? So we see cloud as a transformational platform because it really allows people to organize their data. Like I'll give you an example, um, some of the challenges that we see when we talk to our customers, like a typical thing, a large, um, let's say, inter um, integrated de delivery network wants to run a breast screening program in it, uh, for its patients. They want to find all the patients who happen to be female for this test, who have, uh, let's say, a BRCA1 gene, and who haven't been through a mammo screen in the last 24 months. Now, that happens to be a difficult problem because the data is siloed in different parts of the systems. And these parts of the system do not speak to each other. So this is kind of abstracting from that. This is the problem that we find. The healthcare data is, number one, is siloed. Number two is unstructured. So... I heard this quote one time, every doctor, at least in the radiology space, thinks that they're an artist, they're a poet, they want to create the radiology report in a unique way, and that creates a very challenging um, situation where you want to extract some sort of structured data from that report. So if you're trying to analyze the data at scale and population, that, that presents a problem. So this is exactly where we focus our efforts. We're investing in um, in creating interoperability between these different data silos, and we invest in tools that allow you to extract structured, structured data from unstructured. I'll give you a couple of examples. So this is a company called MNES based in Japan. Um, the interesting slide in here is, shows that uh, the number of CT and MRI machines in the US and Japan is comparable, but the number of doctors is roughly 10x. 
I'll give you another data point. A doctor in Japan, a radiologist in Japan makes around 120K a year. And the price of malpractice insurance in Japan is $600 a year. So that creates an interesting dynamic and it creates a huge shortage of doctors, as you can imagine. So there, there are companies, private companies that are trying to address this. So this particular company has built their solution uh, cloud, on cloud-based, on Google Cloud in this case. So they have a fleet of these vehicles that basically they take around and they scan people. This is a CT scanner that deployed in this van. They take it to remote villages, remote areas of Japan that don't have necessarily access to imaging services. They collect all the data and then they send it back for analysis and processing and uh, uh, downstream treatment. So another interesting idiosyncrasy that came up when we talked to them is that in Japan, many, for cultural reasons, many female doctors stop working once they have family. So by having this cloud-based platform there actually allows them to work part-time and address some of the shortage in doctor that they already have. I'll bring a couple of examples of AI, artificial intelligence. And this, these are examples from uh, what our teams are doing, our research teams. One is in the context of ophthalmology. So India has a shortage of eye doctors and the condition of diabetic retinopathy that leads to a huge number of preventable blindness is undertreated because there are just not enough experts. So what our research teams have done is have collected these kind of images, identified and staged them, and trained an AI model that was able to outperform a group of experts. So this is an example of a very, very specific application, and we believe that there would be thousands of applications like this needed. Now, we don't have the intention of building all of these. We want to ex exemplify what's possible. So the way we think about these kind of examples is the Android and the Pixel. So if you think about the Android the Google's mobile ecosystem has a lot of vendors. You have phones by LG and Samsung and all kinds of vendors out there. And what we've noticed that because we don't have the same control over hardware as iPhone does, as Apple does, we kind of late to the game. So what we decided to do is to build one phone. The phone is Pixel. And that phone exemplifies what's possible using our technology. So this way, this, this research enables other partners to develop applications that solve challenges in their own respective spaces. This is another example in the field of pathology and will be my one before last slide, but this was an example that showed how AI can be relevant to help pathologists be more productive and identify relevant sections of the slide to focus on. And this was a prototype built in our lab that shows how this can be integrated in real time in an off-the-shelf microscope. So these are just examples of applications as well as AI applications, I guess I'm using applications loosely here, that hopefully see the idea of what's possible and how AI and cloud play into the role of healthcare transformation. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Ari. And now Daniel's going to tell us everything he knows about the Internet of Things, and he has about three and a half minutes to do it. So no, we'll it's at 30. <laughs> so I'm not an orthopedics, uh, but I'm a bone marrow transplant. I just got the bone in there. Between, between Apple and Google is an interesting spot to be. But I'm going to kind of try and go relatively quickly and try and connect some of the dots of what you've already heard and help think about the future of orthopedics more globally and through this sort of Internet of, of Things. Which button works? I really need the button to work. That is technology broken again. Oh, boy. AI is easy. AV is hard. 
There we go. So lots of technologies are obviously moving quickly. A lot of them already covered here from robotics uh, to blockchain. And the challenge is how do we leverage that into reshaping the future of health medicine and orthopedics? Because a lot of medicine is still really stuck between the third and fourth industrial age. We're still sitting in waiting rooms, whether we're here in San Francisco. Francisco or Calcutta. My wife in San Francisco just had a Cartiva implant about six months ago, and it was still very fax machine laden and waiting room based. And I thought, still, we're still in the stuck point of, of where healthcare can go. And part of the general issue between all of health and medicine orthopedics included, is most of the day that we're still getting is very intermittent and episodic at the point of care, only at the small fraction of time you have the patient in the room. Uh, and that leads us to be quite reactive, waiting for the heart attack, stroke, or cancer to develop, or some complication from an implant or a fall. And I think the big picture element of where orthopedics and digital can combine is to make us much more continuous with our data, whether it's leveraging wearables or the cloud, and then enable us to be much more proactive in real time and, and hopefully personalized anywhere, anytime, virtualized as well. And so there's a lot happening. If you pick up the new edition of National Geographic, the, the whole issues about the future of medicine, I have the, the opening story in there. But I think there's, it's a sort of interesting inf, uh, convergence now where people are recognizing that healthcare is uh, set to shift uh, quickly. And a lot of that is, is riding exponentials. Moore's Law was already mentioned this morning. Uh, a lot of things have changed in the last 20, 30 years. You see exponentials in Moore's Law all around us. And that gives us lots of new big data. Some of it's in the cloud, some of it's in our pockets. The trick still is, as has been mentioned, that's a lot of that's often very siloed. We don't connect the dots very well. We have lots of new data, but that doesn't always translate to actionable information. And so there's this gap between what we've learned and turning that into real-time clinical utility. And I'm sure, you know, in any clinical endeavor, I'm not sure if it still takes 17 years from publication to uh, clinical uh, go-to, but there's a, a big gap. And I think part of the opportunity we have is to use some of these new technologies or ones that are moving quickly to really shift things forward we have sometimes a potential to underestimate. There's this thing called the Mars Law. We underestimate how quickly some of these things are going to accelerate, particularly uh, you know, what's looked, happened in the last 10 years was going to look uh, slow in the next decade. So part of this, of course, is the Internet of Things. Almost every computer now, even those the size of a grain of rice, can be connected. The Internet of Things or the Internet of Orthopedic Things is obviously expanding at a more than exponential rate. Um, we're about to hit, as was mentioned by Sam and others, 5G. And it's not just going to be twice as fast or 10 times as fast, but about 100 times the speed of 4G when it's fully rolled out. So that means a lot of our Internet of Orthopedic and other medical things will be connected at potentially very high speed and high bandwidth. And that should be available on some of our mobile phones at the end of this year, early next. And so this gives us the opportunity in this realm of digital health to connect some of the dots in new ways. Obviously, it doesn't mean it's a panacea. We're seeing Stanford and UCSF and Mount Sinai and other platforms really start to study these in terms of how we connect them. And it's not any one field. It's not just Internet of Things and AI or blockchain. It's how we converge them and mash them up that gives us the real opportunity to reshape and re rethink healthcare. And part of what I do is, uh, as I chair medicine at Singularity University and a program called Exponential Medicine, we've had some alum here, Sam DeBrower and others were at our first program. There's Walter there in the middle, you know, is help think about this convergence uh, across fields. So what's learned in uh, hematology can apply to orthopedics or uh, pediatrics. Um, uh, we've had a lot of fun uh, building that program over the last eight years and some, some great faculty from Rasu to Stefano uh, have been uh, there mixing it up. Even the FDA, FDA has been there and has been learning how to rethink their regulatory pass uh, software as a medical device. So uh, Stefan asked me to talk about IoT. Uh, I think part of where Realms is, is going well beyond just sort of the standard wearables. I mean, the Apple Watch now is getting really incredible. I want you to be thinking about where sensors 3.0 are going to be, you know, the next 5, 10 years, uh, to the point where, you know, they're going to dissolve into digital tattoos or even basic 
wearables. As simple as a Fitbit can track your patient's post-op in the in-house, out-of-house, just as we saw some examples of. Simple elements from steps to sleep to resting heart rate can indicate who's going to do well and who's not. And I like to frame this simply is that we're moving from the era of quantified self, a lot of us in the room are data geeks, uh, to quantified health. We're going to have all this data from our internet of medical things and digital exhaust flow to us as clinicians and healthcare systems so we can make sense of that to optimize prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. So a few examples of what's coming, you know, we're going beyond weight to shape. You can scan yourself now and, and get your uh, body mass and muscle mass. That might be helpful in some orthopedic issues. Uh, that's the shape scale out of San Francisco. You, of course, gait is something important to many of your implant patients, and there's new ways to sensor shoes or just use the uh, Wi-Fi to pick up gait and changes. We're moving from wearables to incitables, literally devices underneath the skin. Um, this one is actually CE marked. It can measure perfusion, which is important in some surgical cases. Uh, so you may be live streaming data from within your patients the next few years. Um, trainables. It's nice to get data, but how do we get information back? A lot of you uh, have patients with lower back pain or, or in the operating room have back pain yourself. There's a, I was just in Israel last week, met with two former fighter pilots who developed the uh, upright technology, a little sensor you put on your back, and it's sort of a, a little uh, sensor that reminds you if you're hunched over for too long, it gives you a little buzz. And it's like your digital mother prompts you to stand up straight. So that can be helpful potentially with some of your patients or yourselves alone, giving you a feedback loop. Um, and there's all sorts of other things from hearables to ringables uh, to underwearables. We heard from a little more from Spire. I think I, I, I don't know if they like the term, I like underwearables, but the ability for you to have these connected devices in any location, anytime is going to uh, lead to some interesting elements. All the way to wearables that may be a uh, patient at risk for a fall, they can have an airbag and uh, uh, that may be useful for some of you folks. So lots is happening here. The, the challenge is, again is how do you put it all together? As we have digital exhaust from all of our patients, uh, it's a bit of a so what, unless it is engaged with the patient, engaged with each of us as clinicians and healthcare systems, that we align the incentives for payment, that we make it easy and uh, not just data but actionable information. Uh, this is a cartoon that was made from a talk I gave. You know, what is a doc? Just as I thought you're generating too much data. None of us want data. We don't want to be, have a workflow that's overwhelmed with widgets and logins. We want to have a way to, uh, to make sense of that, to change our own behaviors as well. So just because we now have all these amazing data sources from our Apple Watches to our Google Cloud and search information, how do we make sense of that? Verily, part of Google uh, is doing the baseline trial, 10,000 folks with their digital exhaust. We understand what their Internet of Medical Thing elements mean. There's also the NIH uh, All of Us trial you can sign up for, which is a million patients in the U.S., sort of a Framingham on steroids. And where I think that takes us is this idea of predictalytics. You're going to start to learn and predict which patients are doing well or won't do well. We'll have integrated scores. We'll have the idea of, you know, the check engine light for your each patient to give you early proactive warning before they run into trouble. I think at prior conferences, you've had a uh, health loop here, which is a bit of a, a check engine light element used in orthopedics as well. So these things are becoming a uh, reality. And then, of course, each of us can have our own Internet of Things in our pockets today, the ability to do digital diagnostics with a digital doctor's bag. I mean, we always make fun of ortho I'm trained in internal medicine and pediatrics. You know, we always make fun of the orthopods and the ability to do EKGs. Well, now you can or listen to heart sounds. You can now record and have AI analytics on a stethoscope and put that directly into the medical record and be better than your cardiology friends. Uh, we heard from Vital Connect, the ability to, to live stream vital signs uh, inpatient or outpatient, basically intensive care unit level of data uh, 24-7. You've seen uh, examples now of labs on a chip, which might be important for, for everything from INR uh, to, to other elements. And then, of course, the challenge with all this is overwhelming. None of us can keep up to date. We have to connect the dots. All these exponential data sets are coming together. I already been mentioned many times AI from, from examples here from Ari, from Google DeepMind and others uh, are really becoming here. And, and that 
theme of the digital twin, being able to analyze your patients is going to be, I think, increasingly relevant. So I want to close with a couple examples of how this is coming together. So there's so much happening even today, it's hard to keep track of. So I'm about to launch in the next month a website called digital.health, where you can find everything in digital orthopedics to digital cardiology, from the references to the to the uh, regulatory routes, so that we can have a home for all this to come together uh, to learn and expand. And if you, even if you want to prescribe a medical device or um, app, you can find those as well. So finally, I love the integration of convergence. Uh, 3D printing is obviously impacting healthcare. Conformis is out there uh, in the lobby. We can start to sense our orthopedic devices. So you'll start to learn how someone's behaving and uh, with adherence. Some of you might have seen the company called Unique, which you can 3D print prosthetics and scoliosis braces, some of which are being embedded with IoT. We've seen 3D printers on the space station to make orthopedic devices, so remote production, all the way down to the idea of 3D printing pills. And I have a new startup called Intellimedicine where we're integrating all this internet of medical data to pick the right drugs and not just have them in a pill bottle like this, but eventually to print your own personalized polypill. What if your patients are on polypharmacy could instead of taking uh, one pill, could literally, or uh, five pills, could literally take uh, an integrated one that's printed at home uh, potentially every day based on their data. So uh, sort of blending ink with medicine to build 3D personalized uh, IntelliMeds, as we call them. And hopefully uh, that example, and here's a sort of prototype printer, will enable your complex medical patients to take their data, integrate it, adapt, and print a new pill once or twice a day uh, when, they, when they need it. So you can watch the TED Talk that's out about that. Um, finally, my last orthopedic connection, I, I was a biodesign fe- uh, part of the biodesign program when I was a BMT fellow and uh, spent a lot of time in the OR harvesting bone marrow, which you guys still do for spinal fusions, I think. And you talked about regenerative medicine. So I'll just show you one little solution I came up with in case folks are interested in using it called the Marrow Miner. It's a minimally invasive way of har- harvesting bone marrow. Instead of hundreds of punctures, you can do one. It's a little bit of a rotor rooter and goes in the, into the marrow space and can do in one as- one puncture in a local anesthesia what used to take uh, dozens and uh, gets a lot more stem cells out more quickly. And uh, I'm not sure how we connect that to the Internet of Things, but I thought that some of you might have uh, use in that, some of your uh, endeavors as well. Last point, to pull this together, discovery, how do we speed up clinical knowledge? clinical trials. I think that's obviously becoming appified. You can have orthopedic implants that are connected, patients who are connected, and hopefully the future of health health and medicine orthopedics is this changed in 10 years as our driving changes have been using Google Maps in ways where we now crowdsource and share our healthcare journeys, potentially, just like we do our driving to find better ways to the traffic uh, and better ways to get to where we're going. So think of ourselves, uh, if we think as the future of orthopedics, Internet of Things and beyond, it's this convergence of all these technologies. I think we all need to be thinking beyond where we are here in 2019, but to, to 2022, to 2029, uh, be like Wayne Gretzky, skate to where the puck is going to be. And if we're doing that together, we can all... Uh, rethink and reshape orthopedics and beyond. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Daniel. All right. We, we, we busted, we busted Stavano's time limit here, but let's, there's a question that, a parallel question that came up with all three of you there, which is, this is not how we do medicine today. This is not how we deliver healthcare services today. We're doing a bunch more stuff that patients can have to be involved in, doctors, and a bunch of people who probably don't exist yet as job functions. So uh, we've heard a lot about big tech companies getting involved with big hospital systems and big health plans, and we have two of you up here. So I want, this is the 22nd round each. Who are going to be the leading types of organizations who are going to put this into place to build the, what we need, need to create the environment for these technologies in the next five years, not the next 20? So tech companies, health plans, Big hospital systems to be announced. Go. I would say I'm obviously biased, but the most consumer-focused tech companies that are focused on an easy user experience and user interface are the ones who are going to win because that's uh, that's what makes it easy to use. 
and and the ones that are gonna they're gonna make this happen. I'd say it's all about incentives, and often the payer players, the Kaisers, the Geisingers, the NHSs, they're big and bulky in some cases, but they have the ability to align the incentives to prescribe a, a connected blood pressure cuff for wearable, and not have to worry about it always being built. But the billing codes are emerging this year as well, which are gonna help accelerate this for uh, fee for service. So hang on, was that big big tech companies? Was that big? Hospital intervention systems, bigger, smaller, nimbler hospital systems that align incentives to use these to get better outcomes. In that way. I'll, I'll second Daniel's point. I think it will be the providers because they have the access to data and they have the access to the patient, and they're the point of providing that right recommendation of what to do. All right, I just uh, end by saying that with all this stuff to be uh, integrated and a lot to be accomplished in patient care, that's a hell of a lot of work for providers. And if you're in orthopedics, not probably the place you thought you were going to be when you started the medical school. So. Uh, Good luck. All right. And with that, I want to thank uh, Ari, Daniel, and Sharad, and we'll get off the stage and give Stefano his time back. That was the end of the fourth podcast. On it, we covered a tremendous amount of ground with Sharad, Ari, and Daniel, and Matthew did a fantastic job pulling it all together. I hope you enjoyed the awesome discussion. When we come back on our next episode, episode number five, We'll switch our attention to the next major topic discussed at DOCSF-19, the use of sensors in healthcare. We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the DOCSF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.